Good evening. My name is Tanner, as you maybe heard Lane pray, and I have one goal tonight, and that is to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my only aim, that's my only goal, that's my only objective. Now I hope that as I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, as I talked about last week, it does this for you who are believers, who already know Christ. Imagine uh, if this is the flame of worship, I hope to pour gasoline on that and then light a match and throw it on it. That your worship for Christ would explode, that your admiration for what he's done, that your gratitude towards his sacrifice, that your understanding of his character, that all those things would be inflamed, not because of Tanner, but because of what God has demonstrated through us and to us in his word. My goal for you, my hope, my prayer, my earnest prayer for those of you who do not know him is this. Simple. That you would come to know him. That you would come to love and follow and obey him. That you would find great joy in doing that. That's my goal. That's my objective. My name's Tanner and I am here to preach the gospel to you. I can think of no other thing I'd rather do. I can think of no greater charge. And I can think of no greater message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, you'll remember we covered the front side of the card that's on your seat. So if you have that card, grab it. You can look at the front side, and I'll review that with you. Tonight, our main objective, though, is to look at how that card, the front side of that card, the indicatives on that card, the truths, the the realities there impact us. What do we do with those? But in order to do that, we need to pick up a little bit where we left off and review it. We established, just as A.W. Tozer said, that the most important thing about someone is what comes to mind when they think about God. Do you have an accurate picture? Do you have a biblical view of God? We can no longer assume in the culture that we live, as we talk to people, as we initiate with friends and family and classmates and cousins and all kinds of people, that when we say God, that the God they hear, the God they understand is the God of the Bible. It was maybe 50 years ago that if someone was an atheist, at least you knew who they were an atheist about. They were atheists about the God of the Bible. There's so much ambiguity surrounding the character of God these days. We must start with this. Who is God? It's a fundamental question, but it's very, very important. And guess where we will go to understand who God is? Not about what I would have to say, but about what you would understand about God or would like to be true of God, but his self-disclosure, what he says about himself. What better place to go than his biography? What he said about himself and his word, and he said this, Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's what he penned about himself through, Paul, or through Moses. Holy and righteous, just and pure, good. He is entirely different, separate, unique, and holy, pure. He's just. That is to say, whatever he does and whatever he decrees is fair and true. He sits in judgment over creation. We establish that in Genesis 1.1 it says this, In the beginning, God. Nothing before God, something after God. God was in the beginning. Because he created us, if you recall, we went to Revelation 4.11 and established that as our creator, we have responsibility to him. Okay, so it's true that he created us. What does that mean? It means that we are in debt. We are in responsibility as his creation to a holy creator. 
the story went on. We then sought to establish who are we? What does the Bible say about all mankind? What does it say about you? And what does it say about you? And what does it say about me? And what does it say about us? And as we saw time and time again, the picture's not very bright, is it? The description is candid and obvious, and one overriding word comes to bear on all of man's character, and it's this, sinful. We are sinful people. We have disobeyed God. We have broken His commands. We have fallen short of His glory. We have transgressed. We have rebelled. We are an abomination against Him. We looked at sin in depth. You might remember the picture of the large dam and the lake of water held behind it. That sin piling up in our life and that dam is God's patience holding that back. But one day, that patience will be removed. And all at once, the sin that we've amounted over the course of our life will come crashing down our head and God's judgment will be paid to us. That's the third thing we looked at, the great problem. God must punish our sin. He will punish our sin. God is just and He is holy. Just as any good judge would do, He must punish. He can't just wink at it. Sometimes we'll say He can't just look over it. He must do something about it. And what must He do about it? Because an infinite sin against an infinite Creator demands an infinite punishment. The punishment is hell for all of eternity. Cosmic treason against the Holy Creator of the universe. God. And He will punish. And He will not pity when He punishes. All patience, all mercy will be removed and all at once judgment will come on that day. Now there is a reason I, I, I sought to weld that in and almost belabor that point and it's this. You look outside and if you're outside today, how many stars did you see? Zero. Maybe one if you count the sun. But not a lot of stars. Where did they all go? Where did they go? They're hidden by the star that is the sun. You can't see them because of the light. And it's the same way, think about this. If you've ever been around sheep, I was raised on a cattle ranch. I spent some time around sheep. If you've ever been around sheep, those sheep look pretty good. right? They look pretty white and clean and nice. Until you get up against those sheep and you run your fingers through their wool a little bit, and you find out the stuff that accumulates in them and the grease. But if still, if I was to look at those sheep on a sunny day like today, on a green hill, those sheep would look pretty white. What would happen if I took those sheep and we had a foot of snow and I put those sheep on the same hill under a foot of snow and the sun came out and shined brightly? What would happen? They would look disgusting. They would look dull. They would look ugly. They're, they're filth. If you've ever been around a sheep, they have filth. It would be exposed. Why can't we see the stars? All too often we compare ourselves to each other. We we fail to see the blackness of night that is our sin. But when, listen, listen to me. When you begin to see the blackness that is sin, when you begin to see the weight of sin, when you begin to see the justice of God against that sin, what happens to those stars? The glorious mercy of God shines brightly out of the night star. You see those stars as objects of God's grace in your life. What did Jesus say to Simon the Pharisee? She who loves much has been forgiven much. I want you to see your sin. 
Why? Because I want you to love Jesus. Does that make sense to you? I went ring shopping with one of you in this room not too long ago. Uh, not the same one that was announced tonight. But we went, we looked at diamond rings. And do you know what the jewelers do if they're a good jeweler? You're nervous. Somebody's going to ask a question right now. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to drop on your knee. I'm just, no one's going to ask. But you know what a good jeweler does? He gets the black velvet out. And what's he do? He sticks it behind that diamond. Why? Because when you see the black backdrop of that black velvet, in this case our sin, what happens to that diamond, that jewel? It pops out and that's what we saw in point four, God's solution in Jesus Christ. What a Savior. Spotless Lamb of God. Sacrifice. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation, to propitiate His wrath. He did that. He did that for us. God loved us. Not because pinch the cheek. Oh, she's so lovable. What a cute little boy. He's so lovable. What a lovable person. No, not that at all. He chose to set His love upon us in the solution in Jesus Christ. And I hope, it's my prayer, that as you thought about this last week, you saw your sin, the reality that it is, and you went, wow. Look at what, if you're a Christian, I have been forgiven. Oh, what mercy, what goodness, what preciousness, what beauty. And then we looked at how it's not merely the physical sufferings of Christ that accomplished for us redemption at the cross. You remember what happened at the cross as Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the Father, for the first time in all of eternity, turned his back on God the Son and poured the fierce wrath of his anger and his holy hatred out on his son. You want to know how much God hates sin? When Jesus bore it, he crushed him, he killed him, he punished him, he became sin for us. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's almost where we left off. But I did one more thing. I asked the question, so what? So what? What's the big deal? We could say that everything last night, or last week, last Thursday, Satan, if he was sitting here, would nod his head in agreement with. Demons believe everything that we talked about. James 2.19 says that demons believe that there's one God, and yet they tremble. Simply knowing orthodox theology, simply understanding biblical truths without what we're going to talk about tonight, leaves you in a damning predicament. Listen, if you don't respond tonight, if you don't hear what I'm about to say, you're heaping up condemnation for yourself. You're receiving, you're hearing truth, but if you don't respond to this truth, if you don't have a response of faith and repentance tonight, you should leave now. What we're going to talk about tonight, get this, is going to be an aroma. And to some, it will be an aroma of life. You will smell that sweet aroma and it will be gasoline on your fire and you will go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the cross. Oh, Lord, you're good. And for others of you, if you do not respond in faith and repentance, it will not be the aroma of life. Rather, it will be the aroma of death. So what? If these things are true, so what? 
This is so what? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. I told you there was two of you, two types of people in this room tonight. The world tries to break humanity into two types of people often, doesn't it? Rich and poor, old and young, educated, uneducated. The Bible does that, but it does it fairly and it does it correctly. I want you to go to Matthew 7 and look at, with me at verse 13. Listen to me, there's two types of people in this room tonight. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. How many gates? There's two gates. How many people? Two people. How many paths? Two paths. If we were to break down 15 through 19, we would see there's two types of teaching. There's true and false teaching. We would see there's two types of fruit. There's good fruit and bad fruit. We would see, you get it, there's two types of trees. Good trees and bad trees. Fruit trees and thorn brushes. Is that clear? If it's not, Jesus goes on. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them three of the scariest words, four of the scariest words in the Bible, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How many types of people? Two types of people. Two gates, two roads, two paths, or two gates, two trees, two fruits, two people. And here again we see two types of people. There will be two people on judgment day who stand before God and some will enter through the narrow gate. Some have entered through Christ. And some who have tried to get on the path to another way or have stayed on the broad road will go to destruction. The Bible could not be any more clear. And listen, I know, I understand that these are sobering truths, that these are big realities. But I say this to you because I want you to understand very clearly that not everyone in this nation, not everyone in this world, not everyone in Montana, not everyone in Gallatin County, not everyone in this room tonight who says they know, says they know Jesus may really know Jesus. The people in Matthew 7 aren't emphatic agnostics. They're not passers-by. These are people in pews, if you will. These are people at cross life. These are people who profess to know Christ. Because they say emphatically, Lord, here I am, look at me. And He will tell them, away from me, I never knew you. I want you to recognize there's two types of people. If you're at the Boiling River this weekend, you'll recognize that there was... Basically, two types of water there, wasn't there? There was freezing cold water and there was scorching hot water. And they mixed. Sometimes you got in that sweet spot, didn't you? Listen, humanity is divided down the middle. If you can hear my voice, you are in one of two camps. Why is that so important? Because all you have to do tonight, listen to me, All you have to do 
to wind up on the broad road to destruction is to do nothing. That's all you have to do. What do your friends and family and those dear, what do they have to do to stay on the broad road? Nothing. What we're going to talk tonight is the biblical response to the truths that we learned last week. So you remember what we learned, and if you weren't there, we just established those briefly. Now the question is, what do we do with those? Fortunately, the Bible didn't leave us guessing. The first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel card called Mark are in verse 15 of chapter 1. And He says this, The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and raise your hand and pray a prayer. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Go to church. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Go to Bible study. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Bow your head and pray this prayer with me. The kingdom of heaven is near. The time is at hand. Be baptized. That's not what he said, is it? You know that's not what he said. What did he say? Repent and believe the gospel. Friends, there are two things that you need to understand tonight. Your responsibility. And they're not two totally separate things. One man put it well when he said they're two sides of the same coin. It's this, repentance and belief. You must repent of sin and turn to Christ in faith. That is your responsibility. Whatever else you've been told will make you a Christian. Whatever else you've been rehearsed as a child, whether it's baptism or whether it's praying this prayer, whether it's uh, some conundrum, some tactic, some scheme that someone takes you through, whether it's some amount of money, if it doesn't line up with the Bible, it's not true. If it's not repentance and faith, it's not true. Jesus called us to repentance. Paul said the times of ignorance God overlooks, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. To repent. So we must ask the question, what is repentance? What is repentance? We've tried to define it there, the cross life staff on your sheet. It says a change of heart resulting in a change of life. It's a change of, uh, the word is metanoia, and it simply means this, a change of mind. But not, in the word that we commonly use, mind. Okay, we've, in our age, divorced and created a dichotomy between, uh, between mind and really living something. But the Bible doesn't do that. See, if you know something, you really live it out. So if you believe something, if you repent of something, it's going to take root in your life. So if your mind is really changed, it'll change in your life. So we put on there a change of heart and mind resulting in a change of life. <clears throat> Listen. Hopefully this will help you. Repentance has three aspects to it that I want to briefly dissect for you. It has an intellectual aspect, it has an emotional aspect, and it has a volitional aspect. Let me demonstrate, if I can, to you the intellectual aspect. I want you to go to Psalm 51 with me. Psalms is roughly in the middle of your Bible. I want you to go to chapter 51. If you want to go home, you can do your own homework and you can read 2 Samuel 11. You can understand the background to the psalm of repentance from David where he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. And this is the classic. This is a tremendous demonstration of what biblical repentance looks like. I want to start by showing you what the intellectual aspect of repentance is. Look at verse 3 with me. For I know my transgressions and my sin 
is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David knew his sin. He got it. He understood it. Listen, don't let anyone tell you differently. Repentance has an intellectual aspect to it. You need to know. You need to see. You need to feel the weight of your sin. So repentance that is void of the knowledge and the understanding of the sin that's brought about by the law and by the Spirit is not true repentance. The psalmist here, David, knew. He knew his sin. Now, can we ever know our sin in full? No, and thank God we can't because I don't think we'd ever get back up off the ground. But David knew and understood, at least in part, his sin. He'd been confronted by the law. He'd been confronted by Nathan. He understood his sin. That's the intellectual aspect. Look at verse 16 and 17 to demonstrate the emotional aspect to you. For you did not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are, watch this, a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What happened with David? He was broken over his sin. He put on sackcloth. He mourned. He felt the weight. Listen, a repentance without an emotional aspect to it is not repentance. There is a weight of sin that must weigh on us. Demonstrate this further. Look at the verse on your sheet. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. There's another kind of sorrow. Watch out. That sorrow leads. It's from the world and it produces death. Biblical repentance encompasses Emotional grief. Godly sorrow. There's a sorrow for sins. There's a weight to the sin that needs to be felt. Uh, Psalm 38, 18. If you're taking notes and want to write that down, it says this, my, I'm full of anxiety because of my sin. Listen, for a Christian and for someone who's been quickened, someone who's being alerted by the Holy Spirit tonight, you're going to feel at least some, in part, weight of sin against a holy and angry God. There's an emotional aspect to repentance. There's also a volitional aspect to repentance. There's a choice. There's a choice we make. Isaiah 55, 7 uh, says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will, listen, he will abundantly pardon. There's a volitional aspect. Did you hear what Isaiah said? Turn from your sins. Turn to God. Okay? That's repentance in part. And we could go on and on, and I would encourage you to study out repentance, understand repentance. But remember, repentance, biblical repentance, has an intellectual aspect, an emotional aspect, and a volitional aspect. Okay? That's Psalm 51. You can also write down Psalm 32 if you want to understand that and dive a little bit deeper. Okay? Two sides of the same coin. We understand that Jesus also called us to what? To faith. To belief, to trust. There's a number of synonyms the Bible uses. There's a number that we could use, but we've tried to define it there for you. Trusting that this, that Jesus is exactly who He says He is and has accomplished what He's accomplished. So it's trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, infers that you're not trusting in yourself. You cannot trust in yourself for salvation and trust in Christ for salvation. Faith also has an emotional and intellectual and a volitional aspect. We won't flesh all those out. But 
All too often, I, I mention this because all too often I think we do a disservice to faith because we divorce it from intellect. We divorce it from reason. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, you have known the, the Holy Scriptures uh, that since a child have been able to make you what? Say it. Wise. They've made you wise for salvation. You've understood how to be saved. There's a faith aspect. There's an understanding. There's some real biblical understanding that needs to happen there for faith. Faith is a wholehearted trusting. It's a throwing yourself on God. And listen, tonight if you don't know exactly what faith looks like perfectly, if you don't know exactly who Christ is perfectly, do this. Throw yourself at Christ. Throw yourself in the general direction of what you're understanding. Believe on Christ. It doesn't have to be perfect. But you must believe. You must believe the gospel. By way of illustration, it's said that the people who wash windows way up in the air or uh, walk the high rises, the steel workers way up in the skies, some of you gives you shivers just thinking about that, doesn't you? They walk confidently up there, and uh, every once in a while, a gust of wind will come up and they'll knock one of them off. If they have a chance to grab on, if they're not secured, many of them aren't. If they have a chance to grab on to the steel, it's said that they grab with such a death grip, such panic, such weight, such force that you have to pry or break their hands off the steel to get them away. Listen, friends. Listen, beloved. That's the kind of faith. That's the kind of gripping. That's the kind of grabbing on that we must have in Christ. He is your only hope. In Christ alone. In Christ alone, if you're grabbing onto anything else, self-righteousness, if you're grabbing onto some prayer as your work, if you're grabbing onto anything else outside of faith and repentance in Christ, you're losing, you're lost. You must grab onto Christ in the same way that those steel workers, that those window washers grab on for dear life and never, never let go. Faith has an intellectual and emotional and a volitional aspect. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 helps us here. I want you to turn to it in your Bibles from Psalm 51, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2 is in the New Testament. It's right after Galatians, which is right after this, uh, the two books of Corinthians. Chapter 2 is a tremendous part. If you want to study out the gospel more, you can look at chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 10. This is very, very important for us to understand because we established last week we're dead in sin. We're weighted down by sin. We've got the cancer, and and there's no cure for it except for Christ. Verse 1 establishes that we're not just sleeping. We're not just sick. We're actually dead in sin. It says, an uncircumcision of your flesh. Uh, We're dead in sin and trespasses in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is uh, of the Spirit, which is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you know this, verse 4, but God. God intervened. That's what we established last week, that though we were dead in our sins, God intervened. And the grace of God, being rich in mercy and His great love, He loved us. Look at verse 8 with me. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now, if you've been around church for any uh, matter of time, for any amount of time, you've heard probably Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But it's been my hope, it's been my prayer that verses like this, friends, listen, would fall afresh on your ears and you would go, thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the precious gift of the gospel. 
I want to go deeper into verse 9. It says this, uh, or verse 8, it says, it is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? What's the it there? What's that uh, it? Everything. The grace and the faith by which we've been saved is not from ourselves. It's a gift of God. Repentance, friends, faith, it's totally a gift of God. There's no amount. Listen to me. This is what separates Christianity from everything else in the world, from every other ism. That the only way you can come to Christ is by grace, through faith and repentance in Him. No amount of merit, no amount of good works. Your, your works are like filthy rags before God. He does not want, He does not require your work. Only by grace, only through faith, granted by whom? Even that is a gift. We have no reason for boasting, this verse tells us. Why? Because even the faith, listen, even the faith and the repentance, it's a gift of God, a precious gift from Him. John 17.3 helps us understand faith. This is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you, this Jesus speaking. Know God and Jesus Christ, the Son whom you sent. That you may know. The word there's a real intimate know. It's the same word that we would say if we wanted to say that a man knew a woman intimately, sexually. Of course, there's nothing sexual about our relationship with God. It's meant to portray the fact that it's intimate. It's a radical, personal, passionate relationship with the creator of the universe. Isn't it wild? Isn't it wild that the one who spoke the earth and through creation would be willing to call us friend? Friend. Friend of sinners, Jesus was. Only by grace and faith. And this is the response. It's not drop and give me 50. It's not, uh, it's not go to do these things a certain amount of time. I wish I could make this more clear. I wish I could somehow help you understand and fight against your flesh that says, if I could only win favor with God, you will never win favor with God, my friend. It is only by grace. It is only by grace. This made me think of the song, not the labor of my hands could fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Listen, if you bring anything before God as a service, as a sacrifice outside of faith and repentance in Christ, it amounts to nothing. Less than nothing. It amounts to to condemnation against you. Listen, you need to throw yourself on Christ. You need to turn to Christ. I beg you, I exhort you, I plead with you, turn to Christ. Be reconciled to Him through faith and repentance. The next part you'll see on your sheet is this. Do you really want to follow Jesus? And this finally is how I closed the lesson last week. The cost is great, but the reward is eternal and remarkable. I encourage you, I challenge you to count the cost. And I want you to look at that verse there, Luke nine twenty three to 25 He was saying to them all, this is Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will find it. What is a profit a man, or he's the one who will save it? What is a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It doesn't gain him anything. Listen, you need to count the cost. It is simple faith and repentance, but Christ 
calls your life. You to lay down your life. Paul got this, didn't he? 1 Corinthians 15.5, he said that uh, I die daily. Jesus calls you to forsake the world, to forsake your life, to leave all, to follow Him. And this is what so many miss in the Gospel. In a biblical call to repentance and faith, there must be accounting the cost. Jesus gives the parable, will man start, will he build a huge structure without first stepping back and counting the cost to see if he can complete it? I say, you need to look and see and ask, are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to say no to the things that God hates and stop enjoying the things that God says no to? Are you willing to follow Him? Are you willing to lay down your life and follow Him? I'm not talking about moral revolution. Okay, Don't hear me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying do all these things and then come and follow Christ. I'm talking about spiritual rebirth. I'm talking about are you willing to give up all to follow Jesus? For most folks... For most folks, <clears throat> this is where it ends. This is where it stops. I have not been able to get it off my mind this week. So a young lady came up to me last week afterwards. She was in a false religion. And she said, wow, I was so inspired. I said, tell me more. What, what's going on? She says, well, I thought the speaking was really good. I said, well, would you call yourself a Christian? What are you, you going to do with this? She said, well, I grew up in this religion she said, but I'm still looking around. I said, what are you looking around for? Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You don't need to keep looking. It wasn't an intellectual issue for her. It was a submission issue. She wanted to look noble in the world's eyes for searching out in this day, in this culture, in this time of religious pluralism. She wanted to keep searching. Listen, let the searching be done. Turn to Jesus. I spoke at a thing not too long ago and a young man came up to me afterwards. Actually, I came up to him. I sat down by him because he was by himself and he looked distressed. And I said, what's going on? What's your name? Tell me about this. And we talked for about 45 minutes and I read to him something out of the Old Testament and he said, you know, there's really no historical evidence to, to support David or any of those kings or anything like that. And I said, is that right? Uh, where did you hear that? I said, well, somebody told me that to me a couple weeks ago. I said, can you substantiate any of that? He said, no, I can't. He just said, I just heard it. I said, well, if I was willing, if I could prove to you that there was historical evidence, because by the way, there is, if I was to give you some literature that showed that there's historical evidence for the historicity, for the authenticity of the Bible, would you be willing to take it? He said, no, I'll pass. Was it an intellectual barrier? No. He did not want to take up his cross. He did not want to count the cost. He counted the cost and he'd figured, no more. I'm not willing to follow Christ. I'm meeting with him again next week. You can pray for him if you think about it. I'm begging him, turn to Jesus. Listen, friends, so often, uh, my friends, I think of people in my own extended family, it's not an intellectual barrier. It's a submission issue. They don't want someone ruling over their life. The cost is great, but the reward is wonderful. It's wonderful. I have a video clip that I thought might be helpful. Many of you have perhaps already seen it, but I just couldn't pass up this opportunity to show it. So I wonder if Colin would throw it up there. 
Uh, this has deeply impacted me. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this, thought about this, but it's uh, uniquely impactful on a week like this. Go ahead, Colin. Tom Brady has already become a bigger star than Carl Yastrzemski, Larry Bird, or Bill Russell. You go out with Tom, and you just kind of feel sorry for him in a way, kind of, because he's just getting bugged all the time. You know, we, we float through there. They just see a big, overweight yeah. white guy. Yeah. That's pretty normal out here. <laughs> you know, but, the, you know, there's Tom Brady. I mean, everybody wants, to, everybody wants to be around Tom. Can you go out to restaurants? If I have the energy to deal with, you know, putting a happy face on, sometimes I don't feel like that. Now, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not other stuff so in a lot of ways i've created this myself <laughs> it's what you always wanted <laughs> you're right you're right it has and i didn't think it came with all the other baggage though the most eligible bachelor in america well it's very flattering um but at the same time i don't think i sleep any better at night being that no way you mean like alone or not alone <laughs> what did you mean by that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right you were startled by a jack-in-the-box. His all-American image took a hit last year when actress Bridget Moynihan, his longtime girlfriend, announced that she was pregnant with Brady's son shortly after the couple broke up. He is now supporting the child and is dating supermodel Giselle Bündchen. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. It's less money than Peyton Manning and even some journeyman quarterbacks are making, but Brady wanted to leave some money on the table for the Patriots to hire free agents to help them win another Super Bowl. I used to get $600 dorm checks and, and go eat Subway and use pizza cards to get my way through college, and eat baked potatoes and make pancakes every night. So I don't think that's ever been a big thing for me. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. He's turned down multi-million dollar endorsement deals because he didn't think they were right for him. And many of the ones he's taken, he's shared with his teammates. Uh, you guys have to go everywhere with me. <laughs> <laughs> but with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football, and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Four Super Bowl rings. He's married now. He has more money. Do you think it's changed? God, I pray it would. I'm not trying to vilify Tom Brady, but I am saying if you get the whole world, listen, I can't think of one person that more young men in America would want to be like right now than probably Tom Brady. Just won his fourth Super Bowl. His fourth, or his third MVP. He's got millions and millions of dollars. He's got the world. And if he's not careful, listen, 
He's going to lose his soul. What will it profit you? I know you have bold ambitions. And I, I pray that you, that you go out and live in the world for Christ. But listen, if you get the whole world and you lose your soul, you've lost it all. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will find it. He's the one who will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Elliot, Jim Elliot probably said it best. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You cannot keep your life. But if you give it, oh, what Christ has done, will you turn and faith and repentance to Him? What, what a miracle. What a Savior. Would you rather end up saying, there's got to be more than this. Listen, I'm not trying to bait you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. But I am pleading with you. If I've ever pleaded with you before, turn to Jesus and go tell everyone you know about Him. I want to talk to you about the results of salvation. What happens when someone does turn to Jesus in salvation? In John 3, 3, Jesus says that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I want you to turn from Ephesians back in your Bible to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's the verse on your sheet there. 2 Corinthians 5 and... I want to start in verse 17. Follow along with me if you can't. You'll have at least one verse on the sheet there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who's reconciled us to to Himself through Jesus and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And look here. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What happens... What happens when someone turns to Christ? Were you here on Sunday for the baptisms? What happens? Old things pass away. Behold, new things come. You're a new creation if you're a follower of Christ. The life I lived before, it accounts for nothing anymore. I've been born again. I've been born not just by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. Be a new and living person. You see the overflow of that? Do you see what happens? We see this so often in Scripture, this pattern of salvation, rebirth, and then what? Now go tell others. You've got the ministry of reconciliation. Psalm 51 that we just looked at. In, uh, what is it, verse 13. I think it is, it says, uh, or 12. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And uh, then it says, and I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. What happens? What happens when you're filled with the joy of salvation? What happens when you understand these things? You can't keep them. You've got to give them away. You're reborn and the results of salvation are a new birth. And then what? 
You get the ministry of reconciliation. So friends, that's what this semester is about. It's about understanding and, and, and embracing and rejoicing and worshiping God for the content of the gospel. And then what? Going and disseminating it. Going and telling others. Going and what? Making disciples. I want to illustrate this to you if I could in one of the best ways I know how. I've borrowed this illustration from a couple places. One would be the Bible. There's never been a better illustration than what God gives. But another one is uh, something I heard Spurgeon, a preacher named Charles Spurgeon, say one time. I want to, if I can, illustrate something to you. I, uh, I like food, to put it simply. I really enjoy it. I enjoy uh, good drink. I enjoy good food. I would love it. More than God, but I think God's given it to us to enjoy. And so I wonder if uh, I could set the table tonight with anything for you, what would it be? Huh? Buffalo Wild Wings? Okay. What about you? Someone over here. Cheesecake? We'll have that for dessert. What else? Huh? Mashed potatoes, says the potato man. What else? Steak. I want filet mignon. I like to grill it myself and I wrap bacon around it because it's a pretty lean cut and I grill it. Oh, it's so good. And tonight I have for you, imagine in here, filet mignon, warm and ready to eat. And glasses filled. What do you like to drink? Shirley Temples. What else? Virgin margaritas. Imagine if I had prepared up here your favorite drink and your favorite food on a nice tablecloth. I had it prepared for you. And we were going to sit down and we were going to eat. The finest. We used to play this as a kid, my sisters and I. It's kind of morbid, but you get one last meal when you're on death row. We always would pick our last meal. It changed from mac and cheese with hot dogs. Today it's filet mignon, and I love it. I want to imagine with you that we were uh, about to sit down to dinner, and you had your favorite food out here. And let's just say for a minute, just to mix it up a little bit, there was someone or something else coming to dinner. That someone or something else goes by the name of pig. You ever been around pigs? I, for one, really enjoy pigs. I grew up raising them and being around them. And let's imagine through that back door back there, it opens up and it swings open, and who comes in but a pig? And he runs down the aisle. They almost kind of bark. they got short legs and they run really fast. And I took the liberty of preparing some pig food here. Uh, pig food is about anything. We used to have a pig bucket growing up. So in here I have some... Uh, just about the most disgusting things I could find in the fridge. Okay, you've got some good mustard in there. You've got ketchup. You've got Worcestershire sauce. You've got oyster sauce. You've got uh, Cholua. You've got about everything disgusting in there you could want. doesn't matter how much whipped cream you put on the top of it. It's still not going to look pretty. doesn't matter if you don't put any whipped cream on it. <laughs> And let's say a piggy comes in. 
comes running down the aisle, and I prepare his meal for him. I don't know if you can see that, but it's good and chunky. (laughs) Which one's he going to eat? Which one? The pig food. Why? Because he's a pig. Because he's a pig. Why would he eat the pig food? Because he's a pig. That's what pigs do. He would run down here and he would bury his head in this. He would eat it up. But let's imagine, listen to me. For an instant, I'm just joking, I'm not going to eat that. It's just mustard. Let's imagine, just for an instant, I was able to magically transform that pig into a human. That human is you. What would you do? You would throw up your food in there, wouldn't you? And then you would pull your head out, and you would sit up, and you would smell the flaming yawn. And you would see your favorite drink. And you would sit down and you would eat the good food and you would dine at the table with me and we would rejoice. Why? Because you're a human. That's what humans do. And so listen, in the same way, when you've been converted, when you've been made a new creation, when you're a new creation in Christ, you can no longer eat, you can no longer enjoy the sin, the the delights you once have. You now have a new appetite, new desires. You've been born again in Christ. And now you see the, the pleasantries, the joys, the beauties of dining at the table with the Lamb of God. What a contrast. Someday we will sit and we will dine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which would you prefer? I'm not merely appealing to your felt needs or you wants, but seriously, think about this. When you're a new creation, the, the, ones you think, the ones, things you once enjoyed and loved and, and, and ate of and partook of, you get changed and you're a new creation. You look back and you might think, you know, I wonder what that tasted like. I remember that sin. If you were to smell it, you would look back down there, maybe even you were to take a taste of it again, you would go, Disgusting. I can't bear it. Why? Because you're Christ. You're new. You've been born again. That's what happens at creation. At at salvation. You're a new creation in Christ. I won't spoil all the fun. Next week, uh, Deontay is going to teach on assurance. What does it look like to know for sure? How can I know for sure that I'm a new creation in Christ? How can I know that I'm a Christian? You'll see on your sheet there, uh, tests of biblical assurance. I encourage people, especially people that I'm talking to who are professing believers, if I'm just going out and witnessing to them, here's my challenge. 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves. Listen to me tonight. Test yourself. Examine yourself. Or do you not know this about yourself, that Christ Jesus lives in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Are you a true believer? Do you still have your head in the pig slop? Or have you been born again to new wine, to new food, to the marriage supper of the Lamb? To mashed potatoes and filet mignon, are you tasting, are you enjoying the pleasantries of walking with Christ? Are you stuck? Are you, are you laughing at the same thing the world laughs at? Are you, are you enjoying the same thing the world enjoys? Are you dressed the exact same way the world dresses? Do you look just like the world? And friend, fear because you may not be in Christ. You may be in the world. And tonight is for you. Turn to Christ. Be reconciled to Him. How can you know if you're really a Christian? 
Look at those. Come back. Come back next week. Well, we'll spend the whole night talking about that. Romans 3.19 talks about how the Word of God closes the mouth. There's not much more to be said for any of us than this. I implore you, I beseech you, I ask you, turn to the wonderful, merciful Savior, blessed Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb, the Lamb of God, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Will you not turn to Him? Will you not go to Him? Will you not taste of Christ? Will you not rest in God? Will you not lay the sin, the world aside? Have you not counted the cost and decided that Christ is infinitely better? Will you not, to borrow the imagery of the prodigal son, will you not run into the Father's arms? Will you not turn to Him? I beg you, do not throw your life away. Your soul is too precious. The souls of your friends, of your family, of your neighbors, of your classmates, they're too precious to be laughed over. They're too precious just to throw away. A soul is an eternal thing. You must wrestle with this. You must do something. You must. You must repent and believe. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. And there is none other. Turn to me and be saved, God says. Turn to him and be saved. There's nothing else to say. The ball's in your court. What will you do? I beg that you turn to him. Father, enough's been said. The gospel's been laid out. Your riches, at least in part, I, I, I know not in whole. I never could but have been declared the pleasantries of walking with you, a life rejoicing in you and laying behind the sin, the the cares of the world. (laughs) God, it's my prayer. It's my desire that many would be turned to you. You have paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to you I owe. God, I pray that you'd cause new birth tonight. For those of us that are born again, that the flame of worship would be fueled and kindled and brought alive in our life. And since we've been trusted with the ministry of reconciliation, God, may we go and would you reconcile many to yourself through us. This is our prayer together. In Jesus' name, amen.